As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 165, The Eagle and the Frogs. Last time, we discussed the reality of the Roman occupation of Bulgaria. Many maps lead you to believe that the Byzantines were now masters of the Balkans. But the truth is that they had merely taken over the operation of the Bulgarian state a state that only had a relatively loose control over its own people and landscape. The Byzantines had always wanted to destroy the Bulgarian menace, and they'd always wanted to reclaim the lands running along the Black Sea coast. But it seems doubtful that they'd given much thought to reoccupying the Western Balkans. Ever since the collapse of the 7th century, the Western Balkans had become a wild and difficult place. No serious attempts were made to recapture it. And, as I keep repeating, Basil probably would have been content to leave Samuel in charge of it. But now the Romans had occupied it, and had to decide what exactly they were going to do with it. Last episode I described the administrative arrangements made during Basil's lifetime. And I said that they had similarities to the way the Eastern conquests were handled. In the East, non-Romans were allowed to run their own territories, with very few imperial soldiers and officials around. That was the case on the fringes of the Balkans, too. But in the heart of Bulgaria, at Orid in the West and Preslav in the East, a genuine Roman occupation was in effect. A Byzantine governor backed by Byzantine troops, and slowly over time, more Byzantine officials. The reasons for this seem obvious. In the east, those self-administering territories were almost all 
Armenian. Their rulers had voluntarily handed over the keys to the kingdom in order to benefit from absorption into the empire. Bulgaria had not been annexed in quite the same spirit. Also, the Armenians had a colourful history of fratricidal disunity. They were unlikely to develop an independence movement, particularly if allowed to continue enjoying the benefits of running their own affairs. By contrast, the Bulgarians had shown a great aptitude for maintaining resistance to Constantinople, even in the face of overwhelming odds. If the Byzantines withdrew, they knew that the Bulgarians would unite together and create an independent state. So, for the foreseeable future, the Romans would have to occupy Bulgaria. The only way to control their lands was to be present in force to do so. It might sound odd for the Roman Empire, who in its time had conquered many a people, but this was actually an unfamiliar experience for Constantinople. The one major benefit of the rise of the Caliphate had been to homogenize the Roman people. The Syrians, Africans and Egyptians, with their local languages and their monophysite leanings, had been taken away. All that remained were Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians, who naturally looked to New Rome as their governor and protector. Antony Caldellis argues that in this form, Byzantium resembled more a modern nation-state than a multi-ethnic empire. What the conquests of the 10th century had done was to turn Romania back into an imperial state. The government now had significant non-Roman populations to govern. In Armenia, the solution was relatively simple. Rule at arm's length. The mountains made it very difficult to make any other choice, and the Armenians had a long history of being independent, both in politics and religion. Imposing any kind of Romanness on them was a non-starter. Bulgaria was different. The occupation was already in effect, and though it had proved obstinate, the Bulgarian state was still relatively new. Certainly, in comparison to Armenia, which had been in situ before Christ. And here's the cherry on top. The Bulgarians were orthodox. They may worship in another language, but the contours of their Christianity were dictated by Constantinople. Here, then, was a real opportunity. If the Romans desired it, they could attempt to turn Bulgaria into Romania. The leading men and women of Samuel's state had been taken east. There they would marry Romans, learn Greek, and teach their children to fit in. Within two generations, they would be as Roman as anyone else. Could the same be applied to Bulgaria as a whole? Surely this was the only way that the Balkans could actually be re-Romanized. It would take a lot of work a lot of time, and a lot of clear-sighted, consistent policy. But, for the first time in centuries, Constantinople had a chance to persuade a new people of the benefits of becoming Roman. After that dramatic build-up, it won't surprise you to learn that this never happened. 
nor is there much evidence that it was ever attempted. And there are several reasons why. I'll explore the others in a moment, but the sources we have allow us to go into detail on one of them, and that's the psychological obstacles in the way of a union between the two peoples. The attitudes and feelings which defined each side against the other. To demonstrate this, I'll be using evidence from across the 11th century and beyond. A central figure in understanding this dynamic is Theophylact of Orid. Theophylact was a Roman, born in the 1050s, so well after our century ended. He received a first-rate education in Constantinople and was appointed to be Archbishop of Orit in 1078. By this point in time, the Bulgarian church had been divided up a little, with the churches north of the Hemus Mountains under a separate jurisdiction to those in historic Macedonia. So the Archbishop of Orit was no longer head of the whole Bulgarian church, but it was still the most senior ecclesiastical post in the Balkans. In spite of this, it was still an appointment that some would have disliked because it meant leaving home comforts behind. Theophylact was a good bishop and conscientious of his duties, so he didn't fight his posting and would remain in Ohrid until his death. What he left to posterity was a large collection of letters and other writing, which gives us clues about the dynamic between Roman and Bulgarian. Naturally, Theophylact missed Constantinople, and he missed the company and intellectual back and forth he'd enjoyed amongst the capital's most educated men. Many of his letters express these feelings, and they go further, contrasting the sophistication of the Bosphorus with his new surroundings. At various times, he refers to the Bulgarians as having no culture, of being country bumpkins, of smelling like sheep or goatskin, or even being beast-like and ignorant. Preaching to his congregation is like playing the lyre for an audience of donkeys. In another colourful description, he sees himself as an eagle, forced to live amongst the frogs. This highly derogatory rhetoric is, however, rhetoric nonetheless. It's the type of complaint that those back home expected to hear and would have chuckled at. A generation later, Michael Coniates, a fellow Constantinopolitan, was made Bishop of Athens and made similar complaints. He wrote that he feared becoming a barbarian after living so long amongst the Athenians. The point being that snobbery amongst the elite of the capital extended to their fellow Romans as much as to foreign peoples. Despite his rude remarks, Theophylact would become a dedicated servant to his flock. His letters reveal him fighting for the rights of the church, of native Bulgarian priests, and for the common people. Slowly, over time, the Roman authorities wanted cash instead of crops for taxation, and they wanted to conscript the peasants of Orid into the army. 
In both cases, Theophylact was their advocate, arguing for the right of his people to be treated fairly. As a scholar too, Theophylact worked to celebrate the unique Bulgarian contribution to Christianity. Michael Pselos, the courtier who will be a key witness to the narrative when it resumes, made a revealing comment in his history. He describes Basil's conquest of Bulgaria as bringing God's light to the conquered people, as if the Bulgarians hadn't really been Christians until that moment, despite their conversion under Boris a century and a half ago. Theophylact reveals none of that prejudice when he wrote A Life of St. Clement. Clement was one of the disciples of Cyril and Methodius, who'd brought the Slavonic language and liturgy to Orit. Theophylact wrote admiringly of Clement's work, the saint was a new Paul for a new Corinthians. He had brought the Slavs not only the word of God, but a new holy language in which to worship him. Theophylact, far from bad-mouthing Bulgarian rusticity, was giving it a sacred polish, acknowledging the Bulgarians as having a distinct Christian identity, something the Bulgarian church would celebrate on festival days where figures like Cyril, Methodius, Clement, Naum, and Boris would be remembered. Historian Paul Stevenson points out that the contradiction between Theophylact's attitude, his dismissive private remarks, and his celebratory public ones reflect the contradiction inherent in being both a Roman and a Christian. In Roman, uh, particularly influenced by ancient Greek thinking, you were either civilized or a barbarian. There was little in between. Whereas the mission of the church was, in theory, to bring the good news to everyone. Theophylact thus stands between the two identities. He could see the goodness in the Bulgarians and worked to save souls but his upbringing encouraged him to see their inadequacies too. In one letter he referred to himself as a Constantinopolitan and, strange to tell, also a Bulgarian. But the bishop's admirable commitment to his post can't disguise the gulf between the two sides, and the key for me in understanding the chasm is a question that we can't answer. Did Theophylact ever learn to speak the Slavonic language? It seems likely that as a scholar he would have attempted it. He didn't write the life of Clement from scratch, he would have used Bulgarian sources. And yet it seems clear from his letters that he preached, wrote, and held services in Greek. Slavonic services also took place, led by others, we have to wonder how much could really be achieved in the heart of Bulgaria by a man who didn't speak the language. Ohrid was a relatively well-off place. The elites there could speak Greek. Their children went to the language schools or aspired to work with the bishop or in the Roman administration. But for the common people, the bishop, however kind he was, would always have been seen as a foreign figure an outsider, 
not their prelate. And the reality is that had Theophylact gone native, become fluent in Slavonic and joined the local people in celebrating what made them Bulgarian, it would have been completely counterproductive. His job was to be a beacon of Romanness, to look after these people, but to steer them towards Constantinople. Greek services and language schools were necessary if the local elites were to align their interests with those of the capital. It's ironic, but Roman toleration of the Bulgarian language actually ensured that the two people would never become one. By creating a written Slavonic script, Cyril and Methodius had given the Bulgarians a means to express and celebrate what made them different. This turned out to be the key in Bulgarian survival after both the collapse of their state north of the Hemus and their survival during the Roman occupation. One could praise Constantinople for its tolerant attitude in allowing the creation of a new sacred language, but the reality is they didn't give it much thought. If you look at Western Europe, the papacy was completely intolerant of new sacred tongues. Only Latin was acceptable as a liturgical language. And this intolerance was a very successful policy. It meant that educated men from Scotland to Sardinia and Barcelona to Berlin could all speak the same language. The Catholic Church thus maintained its influence across the continent and as a byproduct, a common literary and cultural inheritance was established, helping forge bonds across very different nations. Back in the Balkans, the resentments felt by Roman and Bulgarian alike, were exacerbated by the linguistic gulf. Even educated Bulgarians couldn't actually read the classics of the Greek corpus because those books hadn't been translated into Slavonic yet. Historians still debate if the imperial authorities ever attempted to suppress Bulgarian literature. If they did, then they failed. Snippets of Slavonic writing survive from the period of the occupation, and the picture they paint is of deep distrust of the Romans. I'll give you a couple of examples. A popular story comes down to us as the legend of Thessaloniki. In it, we see a very distorted tale of how St. Cyril brought the Slavonic alphabet to the Bulgarians. In this telling, Cyril was called by God to take on this mission, but the authorities in Thessalonica prevented him from doing it. They told him that the Bulgarians were cannibals and would eat him. But God intervened, first revealing the new alphabet to him, and then making him forget how to speak Greek. When the Bulgarians learnt what God wanted, they besieged the city, until Cyril was released to them. It seems likely that this story was widely believed, and in its distortions we see a clear statement, that God had given the new language to the Bulgarians to help save them, 
and that the Romans, far from enabling this process, had fought against it and told lies to keep the Bulgarians down. That sense of the empire attempting to hold back the Bulgarians comes out in a letter collection of a Bulgarian monk named Hrabra. In it, he takes on the condescending snobbery of the authorities. He actually goes on the attack, pointing out that everyone knows who created the Slavonic alphabet, and they were men of God, whereas few people know the origins of Greek, which was made up by pagans. How can Slavonic, he asks, be less a language of God if it was created by two saints? The question itself shows that Hrabra was very familiar with the type of snobbery which we saw expressed in Theophylact's letters. Time doesn't seem to have changed the dynamic between the two sides either. A decade before the Bulgarians would regain their independence, Gregory Antiochus, another born and bred Constantinopolitan, made an ill-fated tour through the Balkans. He mocks everything he sees, from the people and their manners to their animals and the climate. Meanwhile, Bulgarian apocalyptic literature was already sketching out the future of their people, throwing off the Roman yoke featuring prominently in two surviving texts. Of course, even if the Romans had made a great effort to convert the Bulgarians, it would have taken many generations to succeed. But with the little effort that was made, the antagonism which existed before the occupation comfortably survived the next 160 years. There doesn't seem to have been any official attempts to change this dynamic, at least beyond the elite level. As I've hinted at during the episode, Basil's successors will make various administrative changes during the next century. They will try to monetize the Bulgarian economy. They will promote true Romans as head of the Bulgarian church. And they will increasingly recruit Bulgarians into the army. But none of the old Roman Empire tricks were used. No veterans' colonies were established in Bulgaria. The local elites were not encouraged to demonstrate their Romanness in a way which would have brought them benefits. And no major building programs were initiated by the state beyond the needs of basic maintenance and defence. Why was this? I think there are two main answers. A limited ability to do so, and a limited will. As we will explore when we turn to Byzantium's economy, the Romans were doing well, but they couldn't afford to create new cities from scratch as their ancestors had done, just as they couldn't stretch their budget to man the fortifications on the Danube. And aligned with this, there just wasn't the political will or ideology to support true expansion. Never in the history of Constantinople had a foreign people been conquered and converted into Romans. In fact, recent history 
had seen the opposite process at work. Iconoclasm and its battles had been about defining orthodoxy, narrowing the path to Romanness, purifying the polity to please God. Now that the Lord's favour had been won, the ideology at Constantinople could not easily shift to one of converting the masses. We saw resistance in the narrative to the expansionist policies of Phocas and Semiskis. The public and patriarch alike were vexed by the sight of non-Orthodox people being brought into the system. And though the Bulgarians were Orthodox, they still weren't Romans. So, the occupation will continue in that spirit. The Romans will control and administer Samuel's state, they will draw occasional profits and recruits from it, but largely the tax take will be needed to pay the garrisons who occupy it. And since Normans, Pechenegs and Turks are about to assail the empire from every direction, there will be little breathing space for any visionary policy that might bring the two sides together. Until the 1180s, then, this will be the state of relations between the two. We've now covered north and west of the empire, Italy and the Balkans. As we move east, our next stop is Constantinople. I've been promising for a long time another detailed look around the capital, and the time has come. This period of research will have a lot of overlap with the reading I'm doing for my trip to Istanbul, so there will most likely be a short pause before I come back with episodes, but hopefully it will be worth the wait. The Kickstarter has entered its final 10 days. If you're even vaguely interested in the rewards, do check them out now. You're approaching your last chance to get them. And tomorrow night is my AMA, my Ask Me Anything for the site WhatPods. Follow the links on the website or social media to ask your questions now. You can, of course, ask me anything. Uh, For those of you who'd like to be there live so that you can interact with me, you can ask follow-up questions, um, get a conversation going. I will be live on the 21st of March, Wednesday, at 4.30pm Eastern Standard Time in the US. So make your calculations. It'll be 8.30 for me here in the UK and uh, presumably the early afternoon over in uh, California. Hopefully it's uh, somewhat convenient wherever you are in the world. Hopefully uh, you can join me. Uh, But if not, send your question in now and I'll uh, be answering them tomorrow. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 